Welcome to As I Live and Grieve, a podcast that tells the truth about how hard this is. We're glad you joined us today. We know how hard it is to lose someone you love and how well-intentioned friends and family try so hard to comfort us. We created this podcast to provide you with comfort, knowledge, and support. We are grief advocates, not professionals, not licensed therapists. We are you. Today we are speaking with Catherine Mirano-Santos. Catherine is the Senior Director of Collections and Exhibitions at the Rochester Museum and Science Center in Rochester, New York. Catherine has a Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology and Religious Studies from the University of Pennsylvania and a Master of Philosophy in Social Anthropology from the University of Cambridge. Hi, everyone, and thanks for returning again to As I Live and Grieve. We have a really, really interesting topic for today, and with us we have Catherine Mirano Santos. And before I go any further, I'm going to ask Catherine if she would just tell you a little bit about herself. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. So I am the Senior Director of Collections and Exhibits at the Rochester Museum and Science Center. And my educational background is in cultural anthropology, so I attended school and received a BA at the University of Pennsylvania, and then an MPhil at the University of Cambridge in England. So I come to the museum um, as a public anthropologist, is how I think mostly of my role. And in that role, one of the things that I'm most interested in is really convening and facilitating conversations that are related to important issues, both in our community of Rochester, New York, and throughout the world. That's great. Now, the when you mentioned the was it master's or doctorate of Phil's, is that philosophy? Yes, master okay. of philosophy. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was, but I just wanted to be sure. I always, I'm always curious about everything, and I always learn at least one little tidbit in every <laughs> podcast we do. So there's my first tidbit for the day. Okay, now on and in the British educational system, it's social anthropology, really? not cultural anthropology. So a slight huh. difference, but huh. very similar. Interesting. Well, I have two tidbits. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing well today. Thanks. Well, again, thanks so much for being here. We know that our topic, our overall topic for our podcast is grief. And one of the things that has come up several times with our guests and just in discussions between Stephanie and I is trying to understand what changed or exactly how things changed from generations ago when, if you read historical fiction or nonfiction and history is said in that time, I remember descriptions of how everybody wore black, they wore certain types of garments, even certain styles. The men might wear a band on their sleeve. The house would be draped in bunting. And the colors of the bunting could be different depending on whether it was an older person or a child that had died. And it seems to me that in that time period, everybody knew you were grieving. But I like to joke sometimes that I should have a t-shirt made up that says, I'm grieving, be kind to me, wear it to Walmart and see if anybody notices. Because... In today's society, we don't know when somebody's grieving. And grieving, as we all know, can be truly, truly so destructive to someone and so difficult to deal with. So, Catherine, can you maybe kind of connect the dots for me from generations ago 
to today and tell me what's happened with our morning practices. Yeah, I think when we look at those 19th century kind of Euro-American morning practices, and by Euro-American, I mean ideas and practices that were norms of a predominantly white, middle, and upper class population of Americans of predominantly European descent. So when we look at those kinds of ideas and practices, and and what's really cool as a museum professional is that we get to care for the objects that we hold in trust for our community and beyond. And so we have a lot of material evidence of these ideas and practices that have been preserved and that we are currently caring for to make available to future generations. And so in looking through those collections, I think that they can tell us a lot about those practices and what purpose they served for the people who were enacting them. And I think we today can learn a lot from that. So I wanted, you know, in in our discussion today, just to tell you a little bit about some of those objects. And I think what the general population um, doesn't realize is that the Rochester Museum and Science Center in Rochester, New York, does care for over 1.2 million objects that span a variety of different Mm -hmm. disciplines. And many of those are the objects that tell the story of the cultural heritage of our region. And so at RMSC, we believe that it's really important to preserve this evidence of the past and of current events in order to both inspire and instruct future generations. And so I, I like that we're kind of circling back to that theme today, because I think There are a lot of things that we can take away from these traditions in terms of how we can better perhaps cope with death and even prepare for death. So um, one of the things that I was looking at and doing research for our talk together today is morning art. And we have a, a really beautiful painting that's in our collection. It was created by a woman named Carolyn Merriman when she was actually just a child. And at the time she was attending the Litchfield Female Academy, she attended there from 1812 to 1814, which is in Litchfield, Connecticut. And so when Carolyn created this painting, she was probably just 11 or 12 years old, somewhere in there. And this is a a piece of mourning artwork. So it depicts family gravestones. A lot of them have very detailed inscriptions, and it has mourners depicted around the gravestones. There's a background that shows a village and a river. And so what was so striking to me is the fact that in this era, circa, you know, 1812 or so, you have a young girl who is creating a piece of artwork that is mourning the loss of members of her family. But what struck me even more about it is that I think it was actually preparing her to accept ultimately her own death. And I wanted to read one of those inscriptions that is a part of this painting. So there are a number of family members whose gravestones, as I mentioned, are depicted here. And one of them says, in memory of a sister, Mrs. Harriet Mitchell, 6 September 1809, age 23 years, as I am now, so you must be, prepare to die and follow me. And, Mm. you know, at first blush, that's very morbid, right? You know, looking at this history, this historical object from today's lens through our 
eyes of the present, you know, this seems um, very depressing and almost distasteful. Um, But I think, I think part of the, what we can learn from this example is that young children as a part of this process of, of being instructed to create this kind of artwork and learning it both as an art, but certainly I would imagine as an intellectual exercise as well, is helping them to cope right. with the death that was inevitably, inevitably all around them. And you can really see that. So this, again, was in the early 1800s, but, you know, several different siblings who died age one year, age three years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, if you're growing up in a time when you're having multiple siblings die at very young ages, obviously very high infant mortality rate, again, death just kind of being an omnipresent feature of life. I think it was so much more a requirement to teach children how to cope with that in, um, you know, a, a healthy and effective mm. way. So, so those were some of the lessons that I was thinking about as I was looking again back at this piece of morning art. So I thought that was very mm. interesting. And I think today when we think of art, we certainly accept that art can have a very therapeutic way of, you know, be a very therapeutic means of expressing oneself. So I wonder also if this provided, you know, a non-linguistic way for children to express their own issues and reservations around death, which again, would have been so omnipresent. Yeah, it it seems today we, in trying to protect our children from pain, we shelter them in a lot of ways. Instead of teaching them or taking that journey with them through anything that's difficult or distasteful, whether it be a a terminal or chronic illness or Mm -hmm. a death in the family or something like that. So that's a huge difference, I think, in, well, parenting and in family life in general, where before... Now, do, do you think some of the reason might be that at that time period... When someone died, everything was pretty much in your home, right? That's where they people were laid to rest and any calling hours, so to speak, were held there and everything like that. So children couldn't help but be too exposed. But today, that's right. some people are more apt to get a sitter to stay with the children while they themselves go to calling hours or to a funeral service. Right. What, why, how did that change? What that's happened? Right. Well, I think there has been a transition over the course of the 19th century and into the 20th century of kind of people doing a lot more things that were outward facing. So certainly in the 19th century, there was an idea that women in particular very much kind of handled this private sphere of life. And, you know, I think it's a little bit of an oversimplification to say that women didn't have public lives and didn't have lives outside of the home. But, you know, in terms of community sanctioned ideas about gender roles, um, women did, you know, predominantly have a role in that private sphere. And it's an interesting connection because when you look at um, mourning practices, they are often tied to women in particular. And in this case of this piece of mourning artwork, this is a young woman who's studying at Litchfield Female 
academy. So she is, you know, learning part of this role as a, a private individual in the house. But as time goes on and people are are seeking work outside the home and as those gender roles begin to shift more and more, um, I think that's part of the, the transition. Um, you know, at this time, women wouldn't have gone outside the home to get their right, hair done right. either. And so another shift that occurs is um, in terms of getting your hair done and attending beauty salons and that kind of thing. Um, so I think there are a lot of different right. shifts in terms of what is considered private versus what is considered right. public and what is appropriate in both of those yeah. do- And domains. maybe some of it's related to the community itself, where now we think nothing of jumping in the car and driving for 30 minutes to go to our favorite hairdresser. But then, you know, if they didn't have any means of transportation easily accessible, they either had to stay at home or do something, go somewhere that was within walking distance. Absolutely. I think um, the shift to a more industrialized Mm -hmm. economy certainly has a lot to do with that. And then technological developments, as you're mentioning. So I think all of these are different drivers and factors. Another kind of object that we have in the RMSC collection is hair work. Um, So hair work, (laughs) speaking of beauty (laughs) salons, (laughs) We have a lot of hair jewelry specifically, as well as hair wreaths that are in the RMSC collection. And these things are actually quite abundant in museum collections, you know, throughout the United States and Europe, certainly. Um, But hair work was a part of what many researchers call this kind of sentimental culture, especially of this particular time period. And it it was used as a, a mourning practice, a way to mourn the loss of a loved one, but also as a memento of friendship, a token of affection. So, you know, the tradition of putting hair into a locket, for example, um, is something that that was popular during this period. And in fact, Queen Victoria and what she was doing, of course, was a big influence both um, in Europe, but also in certain sectors of the United States population at the time. And so she famously had a locket with Prince Albert's hair. Um, I know at the Rochester Historical Society in their collection, there is actually a, a locket with a lock of Frederick Douglass's hair. Um, so, so it seems like these things are, are certainly out there and have now become in large part a part of museum collections. Because what do you do with something? It's like your wedding dress with something that's so importantly sentimental and obviously meaningful and intimate in some ways. What do you do with these kinds of things, you know, once they have outlived their useful life and the people who knew and remembered these people are gone? So often they do get placed into institutions because I think people don't see a purpose for them in their own lives after so many generations, but, you know, probably in many cases just don't have the heart to simply dispose of them. But we're glad that they do end up in museum collections because then we can reference them and and learn some of these important lessons. So in terms of the hair work that's a part of the RMSC collection, one of the examples, and we do have quite a wide array of hair jewelry, One is a hair ring from initials JJ and MP to mother. That's the inscription. 
1880. And so, you know, that we assume means that it was two children who were gifting this memento of themselves to their mother, presumably during their lives as something that she could hold on to. So I think we certainly have um, analogous practices. I think of, you know, a right. mother ring that I've, I've heard of yeah. mothers having before to commemorate, for example, memorialize the birthstones mm-hmm. of their children. But at, at this time, it was seen as this kind of very intimate way of passing along something that is literally a part of you. And of course, because hair is a very stable thing, it doesn't decompose over time the way that many other organic materials do. Um, So it has a long lifespan, of course. We also have another item in the RMSC collection that's a bracelet, and it features a tintype under glass of an infant. And the bracelet is created all with woven strands of hair. And, you know, the curators at the museum have assumed over time that this is probably the source of the hair, the, the, the child that's pictured there, and that this object may be a memorial object mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. that child after the child passed. And so one of the things that is, is interesting about this cultural practice is that hair could have been sourced by from a deceased person or you know, gifted by a person while they were living. So both practices were um, common in that time period. And, and so you see also hair wreaths. So literally things that look like wreaths as decorative objects, usually framed in a shadow box style frame that have been made entirely of hair And sometimes, again, they are for purposes of friendship. We have one in the RMSC collection um, that is called a friendship wreath and was was, um, made of hair from a group of friends around the Civil War era. And another that is a hair wreath for a man named Anthony Schneider, and it's clearly a mourning wreath. And in this case, the hair wreath for Anthony Schneider is a memorial, says Anthony Schneider, born January 3rd, 1821, died June 18th, 1882. And there's a, a Christian cross that's a part of that. So obviously some religious symbolism, symbolism and, and meaning that's a part of that as well. And it's really interesting how intricate these examples of hair work become. And, you know, again, kind of looking at the past with through the lens of today, we might often think of these as quite grotesque. In fact, I was talking with a a colleague today and she said, well, I guess it's not as gross as the stuff that ends up wet in my drain (laughs) in the shower. So but I think, you know, in many cases, that's kind of our frame of reference today, whereas you know, in this period, there was a sense of hair being like a very intimate part of oneself. And so sharing that was very (laughs) meaningful and again, sentimental. But there are actually magazine publications. Godey's Lady Book is a great example that really popularized a lot of the ways of processing hair and gave explicit instructions in how to make some of this Mm -hmm. hair jewelry and provided patterns for how to do some of the intricate weaving of the hair. You know, there were even opportunities to purchase tools to do that work. 
And for people who didn't perhaps have the leisure to do the work themselves, you could purchase the hair jewelry directly Mm -hmm. from Godie's Ladybook. So there was also creating this kind of commercial market for this kind of work. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting, again, when we think of this distinction between private and public in terms of many of these private kinds of memorials having a visible public element, but then also being made very public in the form of commercialization of these right. practices. So another kind of interesting thing that I think was happening with this shift in you know, American social culture at the time, again, probably driven by the Industrial Revolution, um, among other things that were happening in society. I think one of the most interesting examples of a hair wreath that I've heard of, though, is one that I just read about recently as a coincidence. And it's actually held in the collections of the Onondaga Historical Association, And that is in Syracuse, New York, so not far from Rochester, where we're located. And in its day, it was nicknamed the Hairy Eagle because it's literally, you know, almost like a hair wreath, but in the form of an eagle. And it's composed of President Abraham Lincoln's hair, along with 36 other top ranking federal government officials and their wives. Wow. And their wives. So I thought this was a really interesting example. And it's actually been written about very recently, as I mentioned, in Smithsonian Magazine. The article is by Jason Emerson. And, you know, it's just such an interesting example. This this piece was actually commissioned around 1863, and it was used as a tool to raise funds that would help ensure the health and safety of Union soldiers. So um, I think that's also an interesting connection because the Civil War is one of the things that in American culture is seen as another driver to popularizing this kind of of practice. And so when you think about young men in particular going off to fight in the war, you may very well lose a loved one. And so I think making these gifts of hair would be something that was also driving this as a a cultural practice and And norm. Of course, today, you know, people will take the ashes of someone cremated and turn them into uh, diamonds or diamond-like stones, other stones. They sometimes will send them off and have them turned into rocks and stones for your garden or that you can pass out to family members. They'll put ashes in little memorial I guess, tchotchkes, trinkets or something, you know, sometimes a hummingbird, sometimes a butterfly. And that's a way that we do it now. And of course, technology is vastly different, but it's really interesting to think that then even that they had the the DIY (laughs) idea, you know, complete with instructions. So there's all these parallels that I hadn't really thought about. So I guess it would be natural then that things kind of change and morph gradually. A lot of it due, as you say, to the Industrial Revolution and then technology and everything like that. And we just change the way we do things. And it's just the natural course of things, I suppose. Yeah. And I think traditions are only, um, you know, one way that anthropologists at least look at traditions is 
in terms of the purpose mm-hmm. that they serve, the function within a particular society or community. And traditions are only useful in so long as they are serving a helpful purpose. And so they're always shifting. They're always being abandoned and they're always being invented, which is funny because I think we tend to think of traditions, even the word itself connotes something that's deeply entrenched with, which in many cases, traditions certainly are. But we don't realize in kind of looking at the lens through change of change over time that these are things that are constantly in flux and they are very dynamic. And so we we may not realize that, you know, maybe we haven't abandoned those ideologies completely. It's just kind of shifted form or become something that we talk about publicly a lot less. And so you know, again, this is probably an oversimplification, but when I think of the 19th century and norms in Euro-American society in the 19th century, I often think that the way we treat sex and death, our attitudes towards those things in terms of what is community sanctioned are kind of reversed between then and now. So today, whereas it's much more socially acceptable to have sex as something that is omnipresent in our lives and there are, you know, visible reminders and people are much more comfortable talking about it through, you know, popular publications, et cetera, et cetera, the media, that was almost the role that death played in the 19th century and especially during the Victorian era. So, so that's kind of interesting. interesting. I would never connect the two at all in any type of a correlation, but I, I think you just did. Um, <laughs> so that that to me is very right. interesting. So both are, of course, are always of course. there. It's just it's the, just... Way, the level of comfort in discussing them, and you know, as I say, that's one of the goals of this podcast for us is making death more comfortable because we feel like it's been kind of shoved back on the shelf or put in a closet, and we want people to be able to talk about it and think about it and plan a little better for their deaths as a way of giving a gift to their family of not having to make those decisions as they near the end of life. In some of our discussions before, and I can't remember if it's been discussions in episodes or if it's just Stephanie and I talking because somehow we always circle back to the podcast and what's coming up and things we've done. We were trying to think of a reason, and we didn't really consider industrial revolution or technology. We wondered also about the role of a funeral director and when they came into being. So our thought was that back generations ago, when all the mourning and everything was done in the home setting, that there really was, there might have been a funeral director, so to speak, somebody that would take the casket off with the body when everybody was finished. But in today's society, there are actual businesses, funeral homes with a funeral director. And we wondered if that might have been partially responsible for moving it out of the home into their business, into a more private place, if you will. And then it's almost like you have to invite people to come, whereas before everybody would have just come because they would have known about it. So we were wondering what you thought of that. Do you think this uh, advent, so to speak, or change in the role of the funeral director and the creation of 
their own businesses where they would do all this stuff for their customers. Do you think that has kind of changed things as well and made death something that isn't as freely talked about in a home setting, but is more relegated or associated with the privacy of a funeral home? Yeah, I think that's a great train of thought to to think about and pursue. Um, you know, I think the professionalization and specialization mm-hmm. of many different roles in society has become, has has created a lot of ways for things that were once private to become part of the the work that happens in the public sphere and things that we outsource, if you will. And today we outsource so right. much more, you know, from growing our own food and and preparing mm-hmm. our own food to, um, you know, if, I think if you look at every facet of our life, we outsource much sure. more of it yeah. than we actually do at home. And so, so I think the business of death is is probably yeah. another yeah. example of that. Wow. Uh, you know, I I look at our little clock and everything, and I always hate this part of a podcast. I probably say every episode that I hate this part of the podcast <laughs> because our time is running out. Catherine, you're fascinating to speak with, and I've really enjoyed this discussion. Probably I have so many other thoughts and questions in my head, and they'll come out later. So at some point, we may have to invite you back. But... <laughs> At any rate, I don't want to start our wrap up without allowing you some time to speak directly to our audience without me primarily. Stephanie's been pretty quiet today, Mm -hmm. but without me primarily interrupting you with questions (laughs) and comments. So this is your time. Well, two things. I just wanted to illuminate one other object from the RMSC collection that I think is really fascinating. We've talked a lot about kind of this idea of mourning practices and what that means to individuals. But what about when an entire nation is mourning a public figure? And so I mentioned Abraham Lincoln in the case of the Harry Eagle. We have in the RMSC collection a Medal of Honor that was given to everyone who served in Lincoln's funeral guard. And so if you think about the highest medal that Congress gives to people, being presented to the people in Lincoln's funeral guard, I think that also says a lot to kind of the value of the roles that we place, well, at least in the 19th century, that we placed on honoring death and providing a transition, in this case, you know, of leadership of the country and, and creating those rituals to make people feel comfortable in mourning the loss of someone who was so public. And, and figuring out what the next thing is for sure. our country. So there were actually three weeks that um, Lincoln was celebrated mm-hmm. and memorialized after his assassination um, and traveled, his body traveled right. from Washington, D.C. back to his hometown of Springfield, right. Illinois. So that Medal of Honor, interestingly, was actually rescinded in the purge of 1917 when they decided it should only be bestowed to people for their military service and that too many medals of honor had been um, given out at that point. Uh, but I think it's interesting that Lincoln's funeral guard was originally yeah. among those yeah. recipients. And I also, so, you know, as you've heard, the the collections at the RMSC are an amazing resource and an amazing reason to visit. I would encourage all of the listeners today to absolutely come and visit us at the Rochester Museum and Science Center in Rochester, New York. 
to um, connect with us for behind the scenes tours where you get to see more than what is on display at any given time and to visit the entire region. I've mentioned a couple of other organizations that have wonderful collections as well that help to tell many of these stories. I also wanted to mention that dinosaurs will be taking over the RMSC (laughs) beginning Friday, November 5th. So that's really exciting as we welcome our new featured exhibition, Expedition Dinosaur. And visitors who come after November 5th will be able to encounter some full-sized moving and roaring dinosaurs, (laughs) including velociraptors and stegosaurus and learn how scientists put together the past from Hmm. fossil evidence. And we also have a number of special Halloween events coming up, including our After Dark Monster Bash and the Forest After Dark Night Hike, which should be really cool at the RMSC Coming Nature Center, which is in Naples, New York. So I would just encourage um, listeners to check out rmsc.org for additional details on all of those exciting upcoming events. Sounds like fun. (laughs) Why can't the kids be living anymore? I know. (laughs) And we do have something for visitors of all ages. So, you know, absolutely all of our exhibitions, you know, are intended for multiple Mm -hmm. age audiences. Well, again, Catherine, it's been fascinating and there's so much more to the, that era and everything that we could discuss and, and perhaps we will at some time. I want to say to our listeners that we are so blessed here in the Rochester area to have our local mm-hmm. Rochester Museum and Science Center. I've been there a number of times, although at this moment, not for a number of years mm-hmm. because my kids grew and then the grandkids mm-hmm. grew. So <laughs> But at some point, I I will mosey on back there again because I I love our our local museum. And I know for a fact that wherever you are in this world, there is a museum of some type somewhere near your home. And I strongly encourage you not only to visit it yourself, but take those you love and care about. Take the children uh, and let them ask questions. Show them examples. I remember going to uh, we have Strong Museum here in town, too, which is like a museum for toys. And that's fascinating because it makes the adults, it brings back so many memories of toys that we used to play with. And at the same time, your grandkids or your great grandkids will say, what on earth is that? And why would you have played with it? Museums in general can be sources for learning, awareness, education, and always great ways to start conversations with whoever you go yeah. with. So I encourage you to do that. Again, we're at the end of the podcast for this week. We have been talking about mourning in the Victorian era generations ago and how different it was and kind of how things have morphed and changed to where we are today. I hope you found it fascinating. I hope you picked up a tidbit or two that you like. We will talk to you again next week. I hope you join us for another episode as we continue our journey. And please remember to take care of yourself. Self-care is very, very important if you are grieving. So stay well, and we will all continue to live and grieve. Thank you so much for listening with us today. Do you have a topic that you'd like us to cover, or do you have a question from one of our episodes? please email us at info at asiliveandgrieve.com and let us know. We hope you will find a moment to leave a review, send an email, and share with others. 
Join us next time as we continue to live and grieve together.